Our sermon text today comes from Luke 22. We'll be looking at verses 39 through 46. Uh, just a brief note on the text itself in the best and oldest manuscripts from which our English translations come. Verses 43 and 44 don't actually appear. Now, some of your Bibles might have a footnote or brackets indicating that fact. Now, for some, that raises a question of trustworthiness of the text that has been handed down to us, and I thought it was important enough to address this. Out of 10,000 existing manuscripts, only 4% disagree in some way. Now, 3% are actually just spelling errors or word order differences. And that means only 1% out of 10,000 manuscripts, only 1% is substantive, meaning there are extra words or like here, extra verses. Only half of a percent is actually debated among conservative and liberal scholars. And that means that the overwhelming majority of the text is agreed upon as accurately handed down to us. And practically, that means you have good grounds for receiving this word as trustworthy. And besides, in that half of a percent that is debated, the church has never built her doctrine on those things. In fact, we openly acknowledge that we aren't sure about those few words. And so, we have every reason to believe that this is the word of the apostles, of our Lord Himself. This is a firm foundation for your faith. And so let me say that as we come to the text, we come in faith. And so let's pray and then read the text. Loving Father, you have made us not to exist on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need. Lord, open our hearts now and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what the Spirit will say to us this day. Amen. I'd remind you that at this point in Luke's gospel, everything is in motion. God's plan to rescue his people is quickly picking up speed. His promises that are made throughout the Old Testament, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the Father, they're about to all be accomplished in Jesus. Son of God, Passover Lamb, Servant king crowned with a crown of thorns. In this final movement toward the cross, however, there is a need of endurance. A hard way to a hard death lays ahead of Jesus here. And so Jesus encourages his friends to pray together so that they together might be faithful for a few hours more. Luke 22 Picking up in verse 39. And he came and out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them 
about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are special bookends. I rescued them from a scrap pile of an old church under renovation, hand-carved relics from an age of craftsmanship. I think they're tulips, maybe? I think they look nice. But the really nice thing about bookends is that they are functional decor. They serve a simple purpose, keeping books together. Bookends happen in literature, too, supporting the main point. And we see some bookends here in this passage. Look at verse 40 and verse 46. As Jesus tells his friends, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That repeated call, these bookended calls, urges them to the only thing that would help them remain faithful through the hours, the coming hours of darkness. Jesus urges them to prayer, fundamentally to confess their weakness while looking to the only one whose strength can help. Because by the time that Jesus finishes speaking, the disciples will be put to the test as Judas and the crowd shows up to seize Jesus. Now you and I both know that Jesus' disciples, both then and now, need to endure, not yield, in the face of temptation. And in the bookend commands to pray, the main point emerges. Dependent prayer is the only means by which we will find strength to endure. Let me say that again. Dependent prayer is the only means by which we will find strength to endure. And if ever Jesus' disciples, you and me, are going to remain faithful for a few hours more, we're going to need to pray. And to be faithful for a few hours more amid temptation, moment after moment, day every day, isn't that the desire of every follower of Jesus? Our spirits long for that kind of faithfulness. But like Jesus said in this same scene in Matthew's Gospel, our spirits are indeed willing, but our flesh is weak. How many of us would enjoy accurately reporting how much time we spent in prayer? For many believers, there is no greater area of secret shame or self-condemnation than our prayer lives. Now, to be sure, there are prayer warriors among us, and I think it's possible that we may stand because they kneel. 
But for the better part, I would imagine that whether we are pastors or plumbers, elders or elementary school teachers, the prayer that we prayed earlier in the confession of sin is all too true of us. Too often the prayers of our lips come from prayerless hearts. And because we do not pray, we often fall when we could have stood firm. Now, I confess, I have no idea what it might have looked like for the disciples to pass the test on this night and remain faithful. We're only told what happened, that they fail in two ways. First, they sleep for sorrow instead of praying. And second, in consequence, they will soon scatter, abandoning Jesus. And so those bold words that were spoken in the upper room just a few moments before, Lord, I am, with, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Those promises are broken. Scattered in the night among fleeing, fearful disciples like them, we can only imagine how our lives might be different today if we had prayed instead of fallen in moments of temptation, both big and small. Like them, we have to admit that we have not kept the promise, maybe that promise that we've made again and again to do better next time. I want to actually say a brief word on their sleeping. This actually underscores the reliability of the word that we have received. What other faith, I'll ask you, what other faith so often emphasizes the weakness of its early leaders? Luke shares with us the whole story, including details that might be embarrassing in order to show the surpassing love of Jesus who saves even people like this. So how can we learn to pray? Not learn the form of prayer, but the action of prayer. We already know what to pray because Jesus taught us. We prayed it this morning in the service. No, how can we learn to become a praying people, crying out to God in our great neediness, trusting in His great strength? Because prayer is the God-ordained means by which we are delivered from or delivered through temptation. Put it simply, do you want to be faithful for a few hours more? If you do, then look to Jesus. Because the grace of this passage is that there is more here than these bookended commands of Jesus. The gospel itself sits beautifully between them. And without it, the bookends are mere decoration. Luke has organized this passage in such a way that between Jesus' commands, in the middle of Jesus withdrawing from and then returning to his disciples, right in the heart of this passage is Jesus' own prayer on this dark night of temptation. Look at verse 32. Jesus knelt and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, 
Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The very structure of this passage emphasizes the contrast between the disciples' failure and Jesus' faithfulness. And so let's listen to his prayer, which is the gospel at the center of this passage. Jesus asked the Father to remove this cup from him. This cup is the cup of God's wrath pictured by David and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They wrote of God's coming righteous anger against all that's wrong in us and all that's wrong in this world. They compared it to a cup of wine that was so strong that it makes a man drunk enough to stagger and stumble and fall. It's a bitter cup. And it's one that we each deserve to drink because of our sin. But now, in this moment, God has put this cup in front of Jesus. In drinking this cup, death had, as one writer puts it, something in it more sad and more dreadful than the separation of soul and body. Jesus had before his eyes the dreadful judgment of God, the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance, and our sins, the load of which was laid on him, pressed him down with enormous weight. And so the divine Christ in his full humanity, prays here for the cup to be removed. And yet, in his full humanity, his resolve to drink is steeled by his knowledge of his Father's love. Yes, the Father's love. Listen, does Jesus pray to some impersonal force? To God in the abstract? To whom does he pray? He says, Father. Already in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Secure in the Father's love for him, Jesus submits to the Father's will. Secure in his love, he submits to the Father's will. Twice, Jesus refers to the Father's will that Jesus should drink that cup in place of God's people. The Scriptures elsewhere tell us that this was his plan along with the Father's. They together had planned this from eternity past, and now that long-planned work of redemption is about to be accomplished. The Son will become the curse-bearer so that we might be set free from the curse. And submitting to the will of the Father, Jesus endures on the road that was set before him. Church, in this prayer, we see Jesus clothed in the beauty of his grace because where all of his disciples fail, he does not. They sleep for sorrow, but Jesus prays through his sorrow. Their flesh is weak, but Jesus prays and finds strength in the Father's love and will. They scatter in fear, but Jesus, 
It says he didn't hide from his betrayer, but he went, did you notice in the first verse, he went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. Jesus doesn't scatter. He remains faithful unto death in order to accomplish the Father's purpose of your redemption. Sustained by prayer, Jesus will receive Judas's kiss. Sustained by prayer, he will be drugged before an illegal court. He'll stand silent in innocence, yet condemned in our place. Sustained by prayer, Jesus will endure the injustice of Pilate, the beatings of the soldiers, the weight of the cross, the nails through his body, the mocking of the crowds, the humiliation of nakedness. Sustained by prayer, Jesus will endure being forsaken by the Father, drinking to the very dregs the cup of God's wrath, draining it so that there is no no wrath left for you. This is why Jesus is uniquely able to save you. Because where all of us fail, He doesn't. Your salvation is accomplished because Jesus, in the throes of agony and sorrow and pain, He prayed. And having prayed, He was faithful for a few hours more. This is rest for you, that we would rest in Jesus. This is hope, not that we are saved by our faithfulness or obedience, but by His. We aren't saved because we pray and endure, but because Jesus already did. And so to Jesus we must look, clinging by faith to Him alone, resting in His work alone, leaning on His righteousness alone, Because it was never our prayer life or our faithfulness that qualified us for life in God's family. No, the Scriptures say that you must give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But now resting in Jesus, I want you to notice something. Why does Jesus give the book-ended command to pray that you may not enter into temptation? Yes, the repeating of the command acknowledges failure on the part of the disciples, and it highlights Jesus' faithfulness. But look at verse 46 again with me. Yes, Jesus' word contains a chastisement for their sleeping, But look what else he says. Jesus tells the disciples, rise. Rise, he says, because their sleepy failure hasn't stopped his care for them. He repeats his initial command, pray that you may not enter into temptation, because he doesn't want them to be discouraged or weary by their failure. He tells them, pray again looking to the Father for fresh strength. Our failure to pray in the past does not negate the opportunity, the privilege that we have 
to pray in the present and in the future. No matter your past prayerlessness, Jesus now, Jesus now bids you rise and pray today. The gospel is meant to put courage into your heart so that you talk to the Father through Jesus, the faithful one. Approaching the Father in Him with all your need, in all the boldness of a child of the King, knowing that Christ drank that cup for you. Approach Him in faith, in prayer, because Christ your Lord stands alive forever at the Father's right hand, still interceding for you. The Gospel tells you that He does not cast you away for all your sin and weakness, because there is more grace in Him than there is sin in us. As the Word says in Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Time is hastening on, but I want to leave you with some application. As we hear this gospel of Jesus, as it puts courage into our hearts, we also have to respond to Him. First, with faith, and then then in pursuing new obedience. And so as you seek through prayer to be faithful for a few hours more, consider these few points that we learn from Jesus. First, pray, carving out every distraction. Pray, carving out every distraction. As Jesus withdrew from his disciples, he spent time in what the Puritans would later call closet prayer, away from anyone else, everyone else. Now, for you mothers of toddlers, it may only be that you have a few moments of quiet while you stand in the pantry playing hide-and-seek. You know that place where you hide your chocolates? But grab one of those hidden chocolates and pray to your Father who is in secret. Pray in secret, and He who hears you will listen to you as you pour out your heart to Him. So first, pray, carving out every distraction. Second, pray, embracing the Father's love for you. Pray, embracing the Father's love for you. Feelings of shame and guilt at past prayerlessness will never motivate true prayer. No, as Jesus knew and rested in His Father's love, you must look to Christ and rest in the reality that He is the proof of the Father's love for you. It was love. It was love in the Father's heart that sent Jesus to bear your sin and shame on the cross. And Jesus carried that sin and shame with Him into the tomb, and it never came out again. And to you in Christ, to you today in Christ, The Father says, you are my beloved child. 
with you I am well pleased. May his love lead you to a childlike, dependent prayer in your moments of need. Third, pray, submitting to the Father's will. Submitting your desires to the Father's will. I think it was John Calvin who wrote that if even the sinless Christ had to submit his will to the Father's, then how much more do we, corrupted by sin even in our desires, still owe to God such obedience as to endure patiently when our wishes might not be granted. It's actually part of the humility of faith that we allow God to be God and order things perhaps differently than we might want. Or as another pastor says it, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that He knows. It was the Father's will that Jesus suffer. Look at Him and see what God can accomplish through suffering. Now, you and I do not want to suffer. I mean, right? But we must content ourselves that our Father, our loving Father, knows best, the best way to bring about our ultimate good. That's why we can sing the words from that old hymn, Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Church, this passage is meant to urge us toward prayer, because temptation is on our doorstep, and our hearts long to be faithful. This passage shows us that dependent prayer is the only means by which we find strength to endure. But this passage also directs us back once again to Jesus, to see again His faithfulness, to bear the sins of His people, so that no matter how often we fall, we rise in Him, finding His grace fresh and new. And looking to Him and His grace, believers throughout all the ages have found the strength to press on, to press on, to be faithful for a few hours more. Let's pray. Father, for this word, we praise you. We praise you for the faithfulness of Jesus that he endured, that he was indeed faithful for a few hours more, just as he has been faithful for all eternity and will be still. Father, in him we come to you asking, pleading, Father, because of our weakness, that you would be our strength. Father, let us look to Christ and learn of him to pray.
Strengthen us, Father, we pray, that we might be those who follow hard after him, submitting to your will, even in the face of suffering, because we know that you love us, and we know that you are accomplishing your purposes in us and through us. And so, Father, help us to be faithful in this way. We pray for the sake of your glory and for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen.